we understand, I think intellectually, that things must change. But then when it comes to us, our first instinct is to try to opt out of it. And if you do that, the only thing that you do is you stand still and everyone else passes you by. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. One of my favorite philosophical quotes of all time is, the only constant thing about life is change. Yet so many of us are fearful of what change might mean for them, how to embrace it versus fear it, and maybe, just maybe, how to even use it as a superpower. In this current time period that I've been calling the great post-COVID reset, there is no better time than now to decide which parts of our lives need to change and which will stay the same. Today's guest is Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, author, podcaster of the show Build for Tomorrow, and in his own words, a nonstop optimism machine. <laughs> his goal is to help you become more resilient and adaptable in a world of constant change so that you can seize new opportunity before anyone else. Hi, Jason. I'm so glad you're here today. Please save me from all my Hello. change. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to save you from your change. I'm going to shove you into it because oh, it's right. good for you. Okay, right, right, right. All right, right. Okay, so speaking of which, so define then what yeah. change means to you. How should we interpret this word? Well, I mean, look, it is such a broad and abstract term, and it's going to mean different things to different people without question. But to me, I think that change is often a fork in the road for people, in that some people see it as a moment to cling to whatever they knew before, and some people see it as the opportunity of everything that comes next. And I think it is very, very natural for most of us to want to take that first path. We see change coming along and we say, no, I am very happy with what I've built. I know what is good and what is not. And I am not interested in discarding all that for whatever garbage is coming next. And yet the problem is that like the future Brit is not optional. It's just not, you cannot opt out of it. No. And so what a crazy thing we do to ourselves, which is that we understand, I think intellectually, that things must change. But then when it comes to us, our first instinct is to try to opt out of it. And if you do that, the only thing that you do is you stand still and everyone else passes you by. For sure. And I'm going through this on so many levels right now. I mean, everything you're saying is like bringing up another bullet point of change in my life. I mean, first of all, I've got two little kids and like we're having to figure out where to put them in school and if we enroll them in sports and like, do they, you know, what are all these changes going to mean for them and who's their social group going to be? Mm -hmm. I've got my like my own post COVID life. How often am I going to be in the office? Am I going to change the way I work? And, and I just started a venture fund. And so I have to start changing my schedule and like all of these things are big changes for me and it, they feel so scary because uh, I think that I, I feel like if I make the wrong decision, I'm going to be screwed. But really, like, mm -hmm. it, is there an optimism about change, for, especially from you? The What did you call yourself? The yeah. optimism machine? 
<laughs> the nonstop optimism machine. It's funny what happens. You just write something about yourself and then people start saying it and then it becomes true. That's how things happen. I would like a nonstop optimism machine in my house. Here actually. I am. Yeah. So there you are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how do I do it? Yeah. Okay. Well, look, here's a philosophy that I, I think is really helpful as a starter point. Britt, did you have coffee today? Uh, not only did I have coffee today, but I have it. You're right holding now. coffee I'm right holding now. Holding coffee because I just sip on it all day long. I feel like it gives yeah. me like little boosts of caffeine throughout the day, which is better mm-hmm. than the instant boost in the morning. That's good. You're microdosing. Yeah, exactly. So people, government leaders, try to ban coffee for 500 years for all sorts of insane reasons. They thought that coffee was going to make you overthrow the government. They thought that coffee was going to make you insane. Uh, Let me ask you something else. Did you sleep with a teddy bear? Yes, and other animals too. And other animals, right? Of course. Fun thing about the teddy bear, 1907, America, national, moral, crisis, absolute, freak out about the teddy bear. Schools were banning teddy bears. Priests were preaching against teddy bears. It was public enemy number one, the teddy bear. Terrible, terrible thing. You know why? I will tell you why. It's fun and it's sort of a side note, but I promise that this all comes back around. So here's the reason for the teddy bear freak out. It's because, so teddy bear was created in Germany uh, around like 1900 or so, and it comes over to America a few years later. And then in 1907, people start to notice something that is very scary. Keep in mind the gender dynamics of the time. We're talking about early 1900s. Girls were not given access to toys that were not related to the home, right? So a girl could play with a, a, a toy pot, but a girl could not play with, uh, you know, a, a ball, let's say. What girls really were given were dolls. And the reason for that is because girls had one purpose, and that was to grow up and become mothers. And so the doll helped them do that. That was the thinking. The doll helped develop a maternal instinct in girls. And then the teddy bear comes along. And the teddy bear replaces the doll for many girls. They set the, te- they set the doll aside, and they start to play with a bear. And a bear is not going to help you develop a maternal instinct, Brit. And Speak so- for yourself, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I raise my so, kids like bears. <laughs> right. Well, that's good. That's right. That's that's great. Well, that means that they have good survival instincts. Uh, so when you replace the dolls with the bears and the girls no longer have a maternal instinct, that means that they will no longer grow up to be mothers. And that's the end of the human race. That was the fear. And that's why priests oh. were preaching against teddy bears. And that's why schools were banning them. And the reason that I'm telling you this about teddy bears and coffee and literally everything else is that everything that you are, everything that you know, everything that you like, the clothing that you wear, the interests that you have, the hobbies, the, the, the things that you think about yourself, all of that was new and scary to a previous generation. Literally everything. Britt, behind you right now, I see a lot of books. People used to think that books made women infertile. It was a thing. Oh it was like gosh. a thing. It was in medical journals. People were very concerned about it. Everything, everything was once feared. This is the thing I dig into my podcast, Build for Tomorrow. And anyway, what you now know about yourself is that you are a collection of previous fears. Everything about you was once scary to a previous generation, but you don't think that you're scary. No, you think that you're great. You are the product of change, and that change has worked out very, very well for you. And so now, when somebody comes along with some new idea, something that might replace some of the things that you're comfortable with. For some reason, our our instinct is to say, stop it. Stop it. Like, I have all these things. These are the good things. I don't know what that crap is, but these are the good things. I'm going to hold on to these. But the thing is that if if we can internalize 
that we are the products of change, that we come from the future. Britt, you come from the future. I've always you believed are, this. Yes, thank and you. And it's true. Preach. You are the result. <laughs> you are the result of, of, of hundreds of thousands of years of, of, of innovation and scary new things. And yet we all think that the moment in which everything should stop is our moment. And that is simply not true. We come from the future and that means that we have an opportunity to shape it as well, to be a part of the next thing. That's the only option. So when people ask me about how to start thinking about change, I think that the thing you have to remember is that you literally are the product of change. Mm. So stop thinking that change is a bad thing because it has to come. And you know what? I I, I mean, we can dig into this more, but I, I think that one of the reasons that people often fear change is because they think that new always replaces old. And it doesn't. It doesn't. New does not always replace old. You don't have to give up everything, but you may have to think a little deeper about what really matters. Totally. And I think that in my work within everything from Britain Co., uh, which was all about helping women change their mind to believe they were creative and just try a creative thing to self-made, which helps women believe they can change their job from like, you know, nine to five, whatever, to like entrepreneur, to even my venture fund offline, which is like, you know, helping accelerate a lot of these businesses. But this feels really scary because that's a big change of growth and innovation and pace. Like Mm -hmm. change is a hierarchy of the mission I've had throughout my professional career and helping others. And yet sometimes it still is hard for me to do. So what I'm wondering is like, what were the key moments in your life where you had to um, change something pretty major? And like, how did you conquer that fear? Mm. I've had a number of them. And I'll tell you one. So first of all, you should know that I was not always this like at all, right? I was I was like a nonstop pessimism machine. I mean, oh. I I remember like a girl scolding me in middle school for always being a downer, <laughs> and I also my mom continu- continues to remind me of how I like refused to stop sleeping with my childhood blankie into high school. I just refused. I was the kid who always thought the first album was the best album. I mean, it, this is. I have a question. You Did you live in the, the same? Is the best album? Oh well, the first album that I ever listened to, Backstreet Boys, maybe. Anyways, mm. I might might be the best album. Probably not. But I was. I have a question. Like, did you live in the same house your whole childhood? Because I think this matters a lot to a lot of people. Oh, that's interesting. No, I lived in two. We we moved when I was. 12? I don't know. Yeah. So this um, is a theory I it have. It interrupted that time. Yeah. Yeah. My theory is that some people might be more resistant to change than others based on the frequency of change or forced change they had to make or forced transition they had to make as a child. Here I am getting all therapist, oh. like philosophical on you. Yeah. Because um, my husband, for instance, has only had one house his entire life, like his childhood home. I, on average, moved, I did the calculation every 4.5 years from zero to 18. Mm. Then I moved off to college and I moved in a different place every year of college, you know. And and so for me, um, moving, for instance, is like not a big deal for me. Like, I'm just like, all right, yeah. I love my house, but I'm happy to like change houses. And actually, it feels fun. And, and Dave, it's like, oh, no, like that's scary. <laughs> I can't do it. This what about this house? We love this house. 
<laughs> and I bring all this up because we have a mold problem right now. <laughs> we literally have to move out of our house um, yeah. at least to fix it. So, but it's like, I feel like I'm more adaptable to change than him. Do you, do you believe in this theory? Do you feel like there's any truth in what I'm saying or am I full of crap? No, well, that's interesting. I mean, I'm going to leave that to the psychologist, but I think that it is reasonable to to think that the more you teach yourself that there's something good on the other side of a big change, the more you will trust it. You know, a, a big a big challenge. Uh, let me respond to that, and then I'll go like tell you a random biographical story that you had prompted a minute ago. Here's something I've observed about about people as they fear change. I think that people fear change because the loss is easier to see than the gain. So think about it. Whenever something new comes along, you the first thing you can see is the loss. We have mold in our house. We have to move. That means that I lose the house in some capacity. You're not going to lose it permanently, but you're going to lose your access to it, your experience of the house gone for some period of time. Mm. What you cannot see is the gain because it's not in front of you. It's invisible right now. It, it will be there. I guarantee it. Like whatever it is that you guys do, it will provide some kind of new experience that you will be happy that you had. And this is something I'm experiencing myself. I, I in normal times live in Brooklyn, but March 2020, the day that schools shut down in New York, my wife and I grabbed the two kids who at the time were four and you know, crawling. And we got on a plane and we came out to Boulder, Colorado to stay with my parents. And we're still here. I mean, the reason we're here still is because we put them in school out here. And so we're kind of waiting for the school year to end. And I hated it at first because I was like, I'm a New Yorker. I'm an urban person. And I don't like all these roads where people drive instead of walk. Trees. And <laughs> trees. People are biking. What the hell is that? And I will tell you something. I have transformed in this weird way out here where I like came to really enjoy it. I go on bike rides. I go on bike rides. That's, that's just, not a sentence. And that not I would have like said just between ago. buildings like in New York. No. Go on bike rides. Like yeah. I go out into the mountains and then I turn around at some point. Like it's just crazy. And I also have come to appreciate driving the kids places and the suburban amenities. And anyway, I, I'm like shocked by this. And now I don't know what to do with this. What do I do with this information? Who am I now that some part of my identity has been shaken? And the thing that I am trying to hold on to is that, um, well, so one, I said, you know, it's, it's easier to see loss than gain, but the gain is there. And Similarly, I think that this is a helpful framework to think about. During times of change and crisis, I think that we go through four phases. I think that we all collectively went through four phases together during the pandemic. And here it is. Ready? Number one, it'll be very familiar. Panic! Absolute panic. We just like totally panic. And then number two, adaptability. We looked around. We're like, okay, well, I guess this is what we have to work with. Then number three, new normal, which is a phrase that was bandied about way too much. But it's like, okay, well, this is, I guess, what's comfortable. This is what I can rely upon. And then number four, the most important one, and this is the one that I'm telling you, you're going to reach at some point after you flee your house from mold, <laughs> wouldn't go back. Ooh. Wouldn't go back. Wouldn't go back means that you will have something. You will find something. And it will be so valuable to you that you will say, I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had this. And that doesn't mean that you're like stuck in whatever new thing you did. I don't know that I'm going to move to Colorado, but I will tell you, I'm really happy knowing these new things about myself. It actually makes me feel more flexible in the world. Mm. It makes me feel like 
I don't have to cling to one identity. I can do multiple things because I'm not the place I live. Mm -hmm. That's a crazy way to think. I'm not a series of activities I do. What the hell is that? If the activities change, then what am I? It's not like that. You have to identify something far more down in your core that you are. And the easier, the more you identify that, then I think the more that you can trust that there will be gain even though you're seeing loss and that you will reach a wouldn't go back moment. Mm, I love all this. And actually, it brings up something for me. I don't know if you know about this. 2018 Hmm. was the most transformative year of my life. 2020 is a close runner up. Um, But 2018 was the most transformative year of my life because at the beginning of the year in January, as I was coming up with my New Year's resolution that I had failed at every year prior. Yeah. (laughs) I said, I I don't don't even try them now. Yeah. It was like interesting. My like rate of uh, success here with this whole New Year's resolution thing is quite low (laughs) as are most humans. Um, Yes. (laughs) So how can I actually achieve success in these resolutions? And I said, well, uh, what about micro goals? You know, like what if I pick one thing a week that I want to try or learn or get better at or just change? Like, for instance, one week mm-hmm. I changed my hair from dark brunette to blonde um, to just see, like, just see what, how it feels. See if I can yeah. learn guitar in a week. See if I can. I became a Lyft driver for a week. I wanted to see what that was like. Like, I just I did I the craziest things for 52 weeks. I did 52 challenges every week. I did a different thing. And I am telling you the closest people in my life, my husband, my family, my best friends will all agree. I became a different person. I Mm. was just open to anything. I found myself. I feel like I, Mm -hmm. I was vulnerable. I put it all on Instagram. It's still there. It's on my profile. All highlighted. Um, you can see it all. I kept doing it. This community started engaging with me to do them with me. Tens of thousands of women started participating in these challenges and doing their own and spending out. And it was just like this rapid period of like micro goals that ended up being this personal growth transformation over a year because of what you're saying. Little changes, little changes, little changes. And I think it doesn't change doesn't have to be a big thing. It doesn't have to be like I'm moving to a new state. It can be like I'm going to drink five more glasses of water per day than I normally do (laughs) for a week even and just start there. Good. Stay hydrated. (laughs) When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's a really interesting thing that you did. And I'm going to take a guess that the process that you went through helped strip away all the things that you do, all the, all the what's, right? What I do. It took away all of those and it helped you focus on something that was deeper. Like you didn't become a different person. What you did was became a lot more flexible about what you do. And I bet it helped refine a sense of your core, why you do it. You know what is a really helpful, I mean, I guess if somebody wants to do what you just did, 
Godspeed, but you don't have to devote an entire year to like being a Lyft driver one week and whatever <laughs> else the next. Um, but I do think that this process of digging in and figuring out your core is really, really helpful. I'll give you, let me, let me give you an example of like what I'm talking about. Uh, let me tell you where I'm at and then I'll tell you uh, a suggestion of how to get there for anybody who, who isn't there. I have a sentence that describes me and it is not nonstop optimism machine. That's good. That's marketing copy. <laughs> The sentence that describes me is this, I tell stories in my own voice. And that came after years of having other sentences that were disruptive. So for example, I started out as a newspaper reporter and I thought of myself as a newspaper reporter. Jason, what are you? I'm a newspaper reporter. And then I realized that the newspaper industry is not an easy one. And also that I didn't really like it very much. And so I wanted to leave, but I will tell you one of the challenges in leaving that job is that I thought, well, if I'm not a newspaper reporter, then what am I? I just said, I'm a newspaper reporter. That's my thing. And now I'm going to take that away. Now what am I? Uh, then I became a magazine person. I am a magazine editor. What are you? I'm a magazine editor. And then once again, I mean, I'm still in magazines, but it's I, I, I honestly just consider it like one of many things that I do now. It's not my primary identity. But But for a while, as I started to get bored just doing magazines... Uh, a number of years ago, again, I had that same thing where I was like, well, what am I if I'm not a magazine writer? And eventually I started to push myself into a deeper realization of what it is. What can I define myself? How can I define myself in a way that all sorts of options can pivot around it? Here, here's, here's, my, here's my way of doing it. Um, so it's a three-stepper. Step number one, imagine that you're at a party, somebody comes up to you and they say, what do you do? What's your answer? Well, your answer is probably pretty surface level. It's probably literally your job, right? What, are, what do you do? I'm a project manager at a whatever, whatever. Um, okay, great. Um, step number two, imagine somebody comes up to you at a party, asks, what do you do? And you can't give that answer. You can't give the answer of anything that you are actively doing. Instead, start to talk about your skill sets. What, what do you have that can do it? So if you're a project manager, you can't say I'm a project manager, but you could say, well, what I do is that I uh, bring groups of people together and I understand their needs and I understand how to work towards a common goal. And um, okay, that's good. Now let's run it one more time. Somebody comes up to you and they ask you what you do. You can't give either of those previous answers. You have to go really deep. Now you cannot give me what you do, day-to-day -day tasks, not interested. And we want to go deeper than the skills. What's deeper than the skills? The answer is it's your core. It's the thing that fuels that you learned those skills or that you're good at them in the first place. What do you do? Who are you? If you're a project manager, I mean, at this point, I think that everybody has to answer for themselves. But like, I would say, what do you do? I connect. I connect pieces. I like, I like, I like puzzle making. I like problem solving, right? That, that's how I got to my answer. I tell stories in my own voice. Really important. Some words there, stories, not articles, not newspaper stories, stories, anything. Right now, Brit, I'm telling stories in my own voice. And then number two, in my own voice, also really important because I have found throughout my career that there are the, the majority of people who are like writing and editing are doing it in somebody else's voice. I worked at Men's Health. I wasn't writing in my voice. I was writing in Men's Health's voice. I'm not interested in that anymore. I'm interested in my voice. Mm -hmm. I tell stories in my own voice. Now, try to take something away from me. Take my magazine job away from me. Okay, fine. I have podcasts. I have speaking. I have 
television development, whatever. You can't take anything away from me anymore. I have it all. Mm. And that is what everyone needs to get to. Once you get to that, anything is possible. Oh, I love this so much. And I was just thinking of mine. I'm like, ooh, what is mine? What is mine? What is mine? But I think mine is this. I think mine is, hi, I'm Britt. And I push people out of their comfort zones. I love that. And I, that's just who I am. And it's funny because, you know, this past week, um, we we have this 10 week course called self made where we help women learn how to start and grow businesses. And I bring in the who's who of like female founders, business owners, expert marketers, blah, 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 to teach them. But so many women are on the edge. They want to do mm-hmm. it. They're in their day job. They, they don't know if they can take the leap. They don't know if they'll be successful. And they, and they, the thing is they also just don't know what their idea is. They're so hung up on like, yeah but I don't think I have the bright idea. And yes, while an idea is important in starting a business, and you know this from your days at Entrepreneur, like so much of it is actually already inside of you. It's part of your core. And we walk them through this exercise where it's like, okay, who were you when you were seven? Literally, like, what did you like to do in your free time? What were your hobbies? What did people tell you you were good at? Like, what were your inherent skills? What were the skills you worked on? And like, what obstacles did you have to overcome? Like. You know, for me, like I, my mom had had a big bout of depression when I was young. And so I had to learn how to like do a lot of things on my own. I learned how to be a really confident girl to be like the antithesis of that. And and now I want every woman to be the most like confident, badass, empowered, courageous woman she can be. And like all of these things were little clues throughout my whole life that created this core that you you talk about. That's like yeah. deep down below the surface. Every single person I believe is put on this earth to do a thing. And that's not their job. It's not their title. You're right. It is their life's mission purpose. And, and it overlaps with what they're good at and sure what they can make money doing and like what the world needs. But like, I don't think enough people know where that is and how to find it. So what what would your advice be? Like I go back to childhood. Do you have another way to help people figure out what is that core passion of theirs? I think that the only thing that you can do is start. Uh, and and uh, I mean, what you just described there, I think is a really powerful thing, which is to say that sometimes the answer is in your biography. It's in something that you learned. You and I, you and I both are doing something based on a thing that we learned ourselves, right? I described to you how I used to sleep with my childhood blankie until I was in high school, an embarrassing admission, and how I eventually, through my career, came to realize how much better things are if I got good at change. And then that became a compelling message that I wanted to share with other people. And you were doing the same thing with your own life, right? You you went through you went through your own more more significant than what I just described trials and um and came away with an insight that you found so powerful that you wanted to build an identity and a and a brand and a and a product and a purpose around it and look it, and that doesn't mean that everybody has to do something exactly like that right sometimes people just see problems in the world and they want to set out and solve them but I think that there's no way you can ever get close to doing it if you don't literally just start. Mm. Reed Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, has this quote that I love, I say all the time, which is, if you aren't embarrassed by your first product launch, then you launched too late. Mm-hmm. And the idea being, and this is for business, but it really applies in every other facet of life, the idea being that 
there is no way to start perfect. It's, it's not possible. It's not possible to start perfect, you, which is hard because you know another, I'll just start quoting people here. Um, Ira Glass, he's the host of This American Life. He has this great observation that at the beginning of starting something, <laughs> you have a gap between your tastes and your abilities. Which is to say that you know what good looks like and you cannot produce it. <laughs> That's hard. It's really hard. And we've all gone through it, right? I mean, I look back, oh, I look back on my early writing. I listen oh. back to my earliest podcast, right? Don't you want to just like, well, you if just you want to like chuck it, it into a hole? I mean, if anyone Googles this, I show it to all of our students who go through self-made uh, just to show them how ugly the first Britain Co. website was. But mm-hmm. you can Google it actually probably and see if, if anyone out there is listening and curious. The, we had a chalkboard logo. <laughs> it was a chalkboard as yeah. our logo on a website. Sure. Yeah. It, that just bet, tells I you enough. It, <laughs> I, bet it, I bet it was a really good idea at the time. I right? thought it was like- It was a, a really good idea. Yeah. It was like connecting Somebody creativity and real life yeah. to digital. Sure. You know, you get that. There idea. was a logic to it. There was a logic. <laughs> sure. But look, that's fine. It's good. Yeah. Not only is it fine, it's good. Because think about it. That means that you went through the process of getting better. You know what would be bad is if all these years later, you were like, Jason, I'll tell you something I'm never going to change. It's the chalkboard logo. (laughs) I love it. I'm never changing. Right? You got to go through the process. The... the, uh, Here's so so. There's Reed Hoffman. There's Ira Glass. Now, obnoxiously, I'll quote myself. I have had this experience so many times, where I was going to do something for the first time that made me nervous, and I felt unsteady, and I felt like I did not belong. Perfect example. The one that always comes to mind is that the first time I ever gave a keynote talk, I was in Scottsdale, Arizona, in the ballroom of some random hotel, and there was like. 300 entrepreneurs sitting there eating their cheap lunch. And I am going to walk out on this stage before, before Marcus Limonis from The Prophet. And I'm going to give like a 15 minute thing. And I've never done this before. And I had no idea about anything. I didn't know really how to be on stage. I didn't know if what I was going to say was going to be resonant to anybody. I had no idea. And so I'm being introduced by the MC. And I know that somewhere in this place is Marcus Limonis, who's an amazing speaker and, um, and is like possibly going to hear me. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. What can I tell myself to get on this stage? And the answer is this line that I now tell myself all the time whenever I face a moment like that. And it is this, I cannot wait for the second time. Cannot wait for the second time. Built into that is the logic that there will be a second time mm-hmm. and that the second time is going to be informed by this thing that hasn't happened yet. I need to do this so that I can go out and get the insights and build it into the second time. You know what happens on this stage right now? I'm going to go out for the first time. I'm going to learn and it's not going to be great, but hopefully it won't be so terrible. And it won't be. It won't be. It won't be so terrible. The first time is, is never, it's, it's not great, but it's not life ending. The only way, the only way that it's like that, it, that I don't get to the second time is if I like walk out there and then a bear mauls me. It's not going to happen. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to get to the second time. And the second time is going to be better. And that to to go back to what you said, like how does somebody 
how does somebody go figure it out? The answer is you just push yourself and start with something. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's a it's a it's a pat answer. I wish that I had something more prescriptive for you, but I will tell you that I've had this conversation with truly the smartest people in the world, the most accomplished people in the world, and they say the same thing. There's just nothing else to do except to go out and just start, and you will learn from that experience. You will learn so much, and just keep telling yourself, can't wait to get to the second time. I think that's really brilliant because... um it's not just about starting. I think the starting is so important. That's clutch. That's step number one for sure. But what you said about, I can't wait for the second time, uh, doesn't only help you start, but it is, I think, a great one-liner for those of us who are so worried about failure. And that could be mm. failure of your company, if you're an entrepreneur or a wannabe entrepreneur. We, we do a, a survey and aspiring. self-made, aspiring entrepreneur. Like, <laughs> um, when we, we do a survey every time we have a new cohort. We have a new one, you know, launching later this month. We've done three before this. Thousand plus women have answered the survey. say, what is, you know, answer to the question, sorry, we ask them a question, which is, what is your biggest fear coming into this course? 47% say fear of failure. Mm. And that's consistent every time we do this survey. And it's so interesting because I think that not only in entrepreneurship, but also just like in your job, let's say that maybe you got let go or you want to change careers and do something radically new, like the fear of failure is what gets in the way a lot of the time, 47% of the time, perhaps. And Mm. if you tell yourself, I can't wait for the second time, that is such a perfect like one liner because you know what? Second and third time entrepreneurs are 50% more likely to succeed than first time entrepreneurs. And I know this because in my venture capital world I live in now, I am hunting for second time entrepreneurs. I don't care if their Mm. last business failed. I mean, I just backed Paul Davidson from Clubhouse, who is a third time entrepreneur. It's at a multi, it's at a $4 billion valuation now, and it's a year old company. And he's got every hot Silicon Valley investor involved because Paul has learned so much in those failures and in building those teams and building those products that I am way more convinced he knows pattern recognition of what not to do this time around and will actually be on an accelerated path forward in building this company. And so I think to your point, I can't wait for the second time or the third time is so key to anybody out there who's who's starting a new job, who's starting a new company, or doing anything radically different in their life. So what you just said reminded me of this fascinating conversation I had a couple of years ago with these investors who focus, they're, uh, they're American-based, but they focus on the African market. So they're investing in startups in Africa. And their biggest challenge, there's so much entrepreneurial energy there, and that's why they're focusing there. But their biggest challenge is that it's a it's a more emerging market and people have not gotten comfortable talking about their failures so they meet these entrepreneurs who cover up their failures who don't want to talk about it and the investors very counterintuitively clearly to the entrepreneurs right people think i can't talk about my failures my failures will put people off but the 
entrepreneurs want to talk about the failures. They want to hear about them because they want to hear what these people have learned and they want to understand their resilience and the way that they think and the way that they pivot, and which is all which is all the reason why I'm sure that you and Paul had a great conversation about everything he learned from every failure he's ever had. You want to hear that. People should hear that you want to hear that. It's important. Mm-hmm. But these, these investors were having trouble because in this marketplace, that culture of embracing and talking about failure just hasn't quite arrived yet because... Well, frankly, we just have more years under our belt here in building a startup ecosystem than they do, and they'll get there. But that tells you how important it is to be open about this stuff and about how failure isn't necessarily a bad thing. If you frame it that failure isn't failure, it's data, well, then suddenly there's a completely different way of looking at it, right? A failure, put failure on a continuum in which it isn't the end of something, it was the part of your story where you learned the really important thing that helped you build the next thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the history of everything. Nothing, nothing goes, you know, th- this, is, this takes us slightly off, but, but I think that it's related and it's important for people to hear is I've noticed this thing about the way that people tell their stories. And it goes like this. So first of all, Britt, as you, as you perhaps know, there's only one story in the world, right? There's only one story. You've seen it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I guess it fits into Adam and Eve. It probably okay, does okay. fit into Adam and Eve. That yes, was the first yes. story. <laughs> it does. That was okay. the first story, okay. right? Depending on which book you're reading. Right. Um, there's one story. It is. It, yes, it's the story of the Bible. It's the story of the uh, every movie that you've ever seen. It's the story of every book you've ever read. It's the hero's journey. Mm. Step one, I set out to do something. Step two, there was a setback. Step three, I overcame. That is the story. And... Most people, when they tell their stories, skip step two. They go from step one, I set out to do something, to step three, I succeeded. And I will tell you something. That is a terrible story. That is a boring story. You learn nothing in that story. You don't connect to the storyteller in any way. When somebody reaches out to me and they just tell me, I set out to do this thing and it was awesome. I'm like, well, I don't care. Right? I don't care because first, you're probably hiding something. And then second, nobody learns anything from this. You know what people learn from? Part two. They learn from the part that you're cutting out. That is the only part that everybody can relate to. You know? Like, your your journey, if you just told step one and step three, people are like, well... I don't know anything about that, right? Like, right. I, I, I oh can't replicate God. that. And it doesn't make I'm you human. Her. Yeah, it's like, it doesn't make all, you human. It's so nonlinear. We've had like four mm-hmm. massive ups and downs in the last 10 yeah. years of this company. And and there's yeah. ups and downs every day. I can tell you about 12 that happened this morning. Right. Um, <laughs> People like you. People like you because of step two. Yeah. That's why they like you. It's step two, right? Why does anybody follow you on social media? It's because of step two. I mean, they, they like, you know, they like celebrating your wins and they like, but like the reason why you're relatable is because of step two. And the reason why anybody is relatable is step two. And we yet, we continue to cut out step two from our own stories. It's absolutely crazy. You have to embrace that. And that means that you have to go out and have a step two. If I was standing on the side of that stage in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I didn't go out on stage and like flub a bunch of things and then learn, well, I, I guess I would only have step one from the story and nobody wants to hear that. Like I have to write my story. Story. And that means that I got to go into the uncomfortable situations and learn from them and then keep going. So what I think is also interesting about this little pop culture tidbit 
<laughs> Don't ask me how I know this. It involves knowing some strange people that know a lot of things about Hollywood. But, okay. you know, Beyonce and Taylor Swift happen to be two of my, like, you know, female icons, as I think, sure. you know, they should yeah. uh, for most women. classics. Yeah. So both of them, if you look at sort of their last five to 10 years, have the hero's journey in their public persona story arc. Right. They mm -hmm. sort of set out on adventure um, for, you know, Beyonce. It was like, OK, I'm leaving Destiny's Child. I'm going to go out on my own. I'm married to this guy, Jay-Z. We're having children. Life is good. Taylor was like, I'm 16. I'm now super famous. I'm super cute. I'm a pop star. Then they like get lost in the wilderness. Bad shit happens. You know, Beyonce was like, Jay-Z and Beyonce, did he cheat on her? What happened? Blah, 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 blah. Like, for Taylor, it was like my reputation, <laughs> literally, <laughs> um, you know, Kanye and blah, 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 blah. Right. and they Scooter. go into like a dark abyss, right? And come out yeah. and then they come back as like powerful. I'm overcoming mm -hmm. this. There's fire burning behind me. I'm like, I'm back in my <laughs> own, you know, world. Right. And right. while I think some events were not fabricated, I think there was a lot of marketing around this that sure, was to tell the story because to your point, it is so relatable. So, you know, if anyone's out there who's like, I always really, really looked up to Taylor Swift and Beyonce, that means you got to go out there and make a change <laughs> and practice mm -hmm. step two and get a little bit lost in the wilderness so that you can have your redemption moment, just like our girls. Couldn't agree more. I mean, th think about that. Beyonce and Taylor Swift are surrounded by perhaps the most expensive brand managers on the planet. And they all sat around and they all agreed step two is good. Yeah. So the, the market is speaking, folks. The exactly. Exactly. So I just wanted to put that up there. Um, so the last thing I want to cover is actually burnout and the question about like, how do you know when you're ready for change? So I think a lot of people right now in the world are burnt out. That's what I'm hearing all the time from friends and all kinds of people. And you said something interesting recently on Twitter. I saw you said that often we believe we get burnt out from working on too many things. But the truth is maybe we're actually just not working on the things we're passionate about. And so maybe you can expand on that and also let us know when do we know like change should happen? Like, do we feel that inside of us or is there a trigger warning sign of some sort? Yeah, it's so great. It's a great question. So first of all, I uh, have to give credit where it's due. That insight about burnout, which is that a burnout isn't doing too many things. It's it's not doing enough of the things that we love. That came from Jim Quick, who I had interviewed for the cover of the magazine. And Jim Quick is a like world-renowned brain coach. And I really loved that when he said that. I mean, it's like one of those things... People, sometimes people say something to me and I just like jot it down and then I know I'm going to be repeating this forever because it's so smart and that was one of them. And uh, I think it's really true and I, I applied it immediately as of course we all do to my own life and I thought, well, I'm doing tons and tons of stuff. The times in which I feel exhausted are the times in which I'm doing things that I don't love and the times in which I feel invigorated are the times in which I am building things that I believe in. And the amount of time spent doesn't change. What changes is the engagement. And so I think that that's a, that, first of all, that is a signal. If we're talking about when do we know if it's time to change, I think that it's, it's important to be listening to ourselves and to be recognizing what we love and what we don't. And I think it's also important, but at the same time, I should say, 
in addition to listening to ourselves, we have to listen to others. Because I have had some really fascinating conversations recently with people who study change and study decision-making and forecasting. And the message that I keep hearing is that oftentimes we are terrible judges of decisions for ourselves because we're too close to it and, uh, and we're too overconfident. Um, can I run you through this? This just happened last week. Yeah. I may be a little rusty on delivering this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run you through a test that I, uh, that I was just put through. And we'll see if you do what I oh, do. Oh, God. Okay. 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 This is, I, I, I warn you in advance that you're going to be uncomfortable and I slightly love it. embarrassed. That's Here what it is. I do. Great. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you know what year Gandhi was born? Uh, no, but I can right. guess. If- no, don't Google it. Okay. I do want you to guess. Okay. Okay. So here's, here's what I want you to do. Britt, what is the earliest year that you think Gandhi was born? The earliest year would be- I'm going to ask you for the earliest and the latest. So what's the earliest? <laughs> Okay, everyone listening, please don't judge me. I know about I know. Gandhi. Okay, okay. I, I, this is I had the same thing. I told you you're going to be uncomfortable. I okay, did. Okay, I went okay, through okay, the same okay, thing. Okay, okay. I'm going to go. <laughs> 1893. <laughs> 1893. What's the latest? 1939. Oh, wait, no, no, no. no, no, no. Sorry, sorry. Eighteen ninety three, nineteen. And I feel like I'm late. I feel like maybe this is earlier. Okay, so first of all, you did significantly better than I did. I, I, so that you don't feel bad, okay. I literally said nineteen forty and then nineteen fifty five, which, which is way off. You were closer. The answer is night is eighteen sixty nine. The answer is eighteen sixty nine. Okay, ah. but so you weren't actually that far off. But here, but the point is not to know whether or not the point is not to know when Gandhi was born. That doesn't matter. Here's the point. Ready? This yeah. is, this blew my mind. You did the same thing that I did. So your guess, your window, eighteen ninety three to nineteen oh nine. So who who can do who can do quick math on that? Yeah. That's um, twenty five. Seven. Years. Nine, what's that? Twenty six years. Yeah. Okay. Twenty six years. No, that's, no, sixteen that's years. Guess. Sixteen years. No, sixteen years. There, there we go. <laughs> my math is we're both, really good. We're both, yeah, we're both math majors here. So sixteen years. That's great. My guess was fifteen years. So we created the same window. Now. This, this, this test was put to me by a guy named Warren Hatch, who is the CEO of a company called Good Judgment. Good Judgment is a forecasting company. So let's say that you're like a plastics manufacturer and you want to know what's going to happen in plastics in the next five to 10 years. You hire Good Judgment. They have a team of people who they call super forecasters. And these people are especially good at looking at data and predicting the future. And I wanted to know from Warren how do you identify a super forecaster? What is a super forecaster doing that I am not? And one of his big answers was most people are overconfident. If you ask them if they're overconfident, they're not going to say so, right? If I said, Britt, are you overconfident? You're not going to be like, yes, I'm overconfident, right? You're going to say no. But you can test for overconfidence. And I said, how can you test for overconfidence? And uh, he was like, well, there's, there is a test. Here's one of the questions from the test. And then he asked me the Gandhi thing. And the point of it is to show how overconfident you and I are. We did not know the answer to this question. We were both embarrassed by how we did not know the answer to this question. And yet, when provided an opportunity to give a range, we went really narrow. 
You went 16 years. I went 15 years based on nothing. We didn't know the answer. And we did a narrow, narrow range. What should have been the right answer? You and I should have said the earliest is 1600 and the latest is 1985, right? Then we would have been correct. The, the, the correct answer would have been in that range. But we don't do that. We are overconfident and we often narrow the amount of information that we think is willing, that we think we should be taking seriously. And that is a problem. That actually inhibits our ability to make rational decisions because we are not taking in all of the information. And so I know, isn't it mind blowing? Like I could, I just started Now I'm going back to feeling like a failure, but then I'm realizing failure is good because it's part of step two. (laughs) And then I'm going to come out of the wilderness and have my Beyonce moment. So like, actually this is all positive. Yeah. This was all positive, (laughs) right? At the beginning, this five minutes ago, people were like, Brit doesn't know when Gandhi was born. I can't believe it. And now people are like, this is great. I don't know when Gandhi's born either. Now I relate to her more. So, so look, the thing is like, I, I think that Gandhi, Gandhi question really, really struck me. And the reason is because it just made me think, what other options, what other information am I not considering? I mean, to go back to something that we were talking about at the very beginning, here I am, I'm in Colorado, I'm going to go back to New York. I don't know where I want to live now. I don't know what to do. My wife and I have the same conversation over and over and over again, where we have like three ideas of what we want to do. And then I think about the Gandhi question and I'm like, I'm there, I have, I have perhaps falsely limited the factors that I should be considering and the options available to me. Mm. And we need to push back against our own overconfidence. We need to recognize it and we need to push back on it. So in the beginning of this answer, I was talking about and agreeing with you about listening to yourself. It's important to listen to yourself, but don't only listen to yourself. Make sure that you're getting outside of yourself and that you're challenging yourself too, because we don't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. And I do think that's a good point too, because if you're thinking of making a change or you're feeling like a, a little fire inside of you, um, there are other people you can ask, you can explore ideas, possibilities. You know, the number one rule in improv and in brainstorming is there are no bad ideas. All ideas are good ideas. You just have to get them out there on the table and you will start feeling into which one might make sense for you. And then you're going to get yeah. to the point where you're stuck because it's going to feel scary and big. And at that point, you or someone else needs to just push you off the ledge to do the thing. <laughs> And I bet after you do that a few times, your muscle memory will kick in and you'll realize taking a big leap of faith is not as hard as you once thought it was. So, um, Jason, this was incredible. I honestly, uh, it was fun and enlightening. And, um, you know, one of the things we like to do at the end of the show, because it's called Teach Mm -hmm. Me Something New, is to leave our listeners with a piece of homework for how to start practicing this. So if there's one thing, if they have their own give it a week challenge this week, they can only do one thing. What would that thing be? To embrace change. I mean, I'm slightly tempted to remind you to try to dig into your core, but we have already covered that. So let me, let me suggest this. For the next week, any time that somebody mentions something that you feel like is new and represents some kind of change, could be anything. Could be, for example, well, I mean, let's say a couple a year ago, it would have been people are talking about TikTok. And you're like, should I join TikTok? Should I be aware of TikTok? Every time that somebody says something like that, write it down. Mm-hmm. 
And the reason why I'm asking you to write it down and not to go do it is because you're going to hear too many of these things and we can't do everything. It's not possible. And so instead, I want you to write it down. And then, okay, this is going to go past like what you can do in a week, but you can start in a week. I would suggest doing this maybe over the course of a month or two. And um, every week, maybe write down what new thing you heard, something that maybe you should try that would require some kind of change, even if it's very small. If you were not on TikTok and you signed up for TikTok, that's a change, some kind of change. And after a while, after like a month, look back on this list. Um, look for patterns. What things did somebody say and then you never heard about again? What things did you hear 10 people say? And then pick one and do it. And the reason why I suggest this as a process is because I think that if I just said, try something new, you wouldn't know where to begin. And also, if I said, try everything, it would be overwhelming and you wouldn't do it. And so instead, I think that we should run a little data set experiment on ourselves. What are we hearing? What are people doing? Take a look at one thing. Pick one thing and try it. And I think that if you did this over the course of a year, you would, let's just say, let's just say that every three months you do the review of three months worth of lists, and then you try one thing, three, six, nine, 12. You did it four times. At least I could get that math correct. And four times in a year, even if one or two of them are powerful, you know, that probably puts you ahead. Because I think entire years go by where somebody doesn't push themselves to try one new thing. And that one new thing, I mean, I joined TikTok. It didn't do anything for me. I joined Instagram and I built this huge community that I love. I, I, you just never know until you try and you never know which things to try. And I think that just listening to your environment and seeing the patterns and seeing what's worth your time is the best way to start. Mm, so good. Ugh, I just want to like repeat this episode over and over in my daily <laughs> life as I'm getting ready for the morning. Um, well, that's good. It'll run. It'll run up your uh, listener count. Right. So, exactly. Uh, one I'm, I'm one day at a time. And and for all of you, um, selfless plug. If if there are any of you out there who want to start something that they've been thinking about for a while in the business sense, in the entrepreneurial sense, I want to make sure you know that. Self-Made, which is the 10-week course I coach. I bring in all the most powerful women in business to help coach. You get mentorship. You get, you know, thousands of dollars worth of uh, instruction, templates, you know, live teaching. That kicks off June 28th and we close registration June 23rd. All the details are tryselfmade.com. So hurry, we only have a week left to register Ooh, and if you want to get in this summer. And Jason, I want you to do um, a couple of, of self-promos too, because I think a lot of these yeah. listeners want to follow you and find you. So where can we do all of that? <laughs> um, I appreciate that. Uh, so here are some things that you can do. Number one, I had mentioned before my podcast, Build for Tomorrow. I would love for you to check that out. It's full of stories about why we are afraid of change and how to get over it. And I try to answer the things that we are concerned about today. Are we addicted to technology? The answer is no, we're not. I swear to you, the answer is no. Are participation trophies harming our youth? No, they're not. They've been given out for a hundred years. So they're like, I, I just, yeah, I know, right? They've been given Whoa. out for a hundred years. Literally everybody who has ever said the kids today and their participation trophies, they got participation trophies too, and they didn't know it. And that's because, or they don't remember it. And that's because it just wasn't important. So look, Here's what I want you to do. 
Listen to Build for Tomorrow. And also, you can go to my website, jasonpfeiffer.com, J-A-S-O-N, F as in Frank, E-I, F as in Frank, E-R.com, jasonpfeiffer.com, and click on the free training button. And that will give you a free audio course that I have created about how to be more adaptable. And I think you will really enjoy it. And Britt, this has been such a pleasure. You are such a pleasure. This has been really enlightening on so many levels. So thank you. And that is our show for you guys today. So go out there, make some changes, write it all down. And also, like, I want to know what things are you changing? So hit me up on Instagram. I'm at Brit if you want to let me know. And I'm here to support you and cheer you on along the way. That's our show, everyone. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And if you really want to go for the bonus points, share it with a friend. We love friends here. Hope you enjoyed listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Britain Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Allie Ives and Allie Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson. 